Now we're going to have to cut I, this out. I, no, we're not. Okay. Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? I could not be more excited. I mean, I'm sick. Yeah. Very sick. I've actually been really sick this week. Like, just woozy and like not sure where I am all the time. Sweaty, cold sweats. Um, I'm, my eyes are bloodshot. Um, but I'm in a great mood, and I'll tell you why. Why are you in a, in a great mood there, David? Well, it is my hope that the listeners are able to sense higher sound quality. They can't possibly sense that. I'm hoping they can because, no, we're not at the studio. We're at uh, boring old Tyler's apartment. I, I mean that both ways. <laughs> the apartment hey. of boring old Tyler and... My apartment has been complimented by many of our guests. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, One Emily Maya Mills just had nice things to say about it. You haven't heard her yet, have you, listeners? No. You haven't. Uh, In a couple weeks. But no, we have finally... Your very generous donations um, have really uh, helped us... I I say really helped us. No, they went the whole way in Mm -hmm. helping us towards purchasing some new equipment. So I know we've had a couple of... (laughs) At least one person has mentioned the very low buzzing sound that has been driving you, Tyler, crazy yeah. for a couple months now. Um, hopefully that should be gone. Everything should be should be fixed. We're uh, we're even in a different part of the apartment right now. It feels very professional. Different kinds of chairs, less comfortable. Uh-huh. I'll be honest with you. It'll keep us. It'll keep our heads in the game. Is that what'll happen? I think so. All right. I got so I got so complacent sitting in that big old like, overstuffed. Uh, armchair that you have there uh, man oh man you have no idea how complacent you got <laughs> uh, resting on my laurels is what i was doing um or haunches um, would you like me to talk for a moment you've been uh, you've had that water bottle near no. your lips for like two minutes i know what i'm doing here okay um i'm so excited but anyway there's a there's a lot of reasons to be excited david we had lorraine newman uh yeah, last I, week i still can't believe it very exciting uh the live show was, when you're listening to this last night, let's say it went well. Yeah, let's say that. Yeah. Who knows if it did, <laughs> but, uh, but everyone... You, yeah, you, you people get to live in some sort of futuristic <laughs> utopia, at least for this hour, hour and a half, where the live show went, went beautifully. So thank you, thank you all for coming. It's all going to be you, so sad. Thanks if it... for flying in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is interesting. Um you know, you're not much of a Facebook presence, but uh, as far as the Facebook uh, event, people RSVPing and such, uh, yeah. people, you know, I, I understand maybe not everybody quite understands what the live show is. Maybe they think it's something they can tune into on their computer. Uh, perfectly understandable why someone might think that. I guess. I guess. But uh, people from way out of state who I, I know have no intention of flying in, uh, have RSVP'd yes, and that is off-putting. Um, <laughs> you know, I, do, I appreciate uh, your, <laughs> your enthusiasm, but seriously, we're trying to get a, a like a, we, we were trying to get a good count for the show, yeah. and, uh, and you're throwing us off. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, uh, next time, uh, you know, pay closer attention. <laughs> but for those of you who did come, thanks for coming. I'm sure it went well. Mm-hmm. Kyle and Mike and Josh and Susan were all hilarious. That much I can say for certain right no, now. No question about it. Um, we were uh, probably didn't embarrass ourselves too much. <laughs> um, Remains to be seen. And uh, that's it. 
Thanks for listening. <laughs> what? Uh, we'll get you next time. Wait, what? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm sick. I meant uh, thanks for coming. Um, but anyway, for we've had we've had some guests recently. And Lots of guests. We've yes. got more to come. Yeah, we're kind of like uh, I know you and I are, are, are of two different minds about the guest episodes. I think what, we talked about this the other my, day. What is my mind about that you? Uh, like, feel like the pressure is on when oh, we yeah. have a guest, and I feel like the pressure is off. Well, to and a that cer- probably shows in the fact that I phone in those guest episodes. Well, to I a let certain them extent, carry the whole thing. Most of the guests, there's a couple of exceptions here and there, but most of the guests record. You know, most of the guest episodes are recorded here at my apartment, right. so I want to make sure it's clean. Sure. Uh, and so there's that, and also like it. it we in the past we have been caught unawares when a guest stops talking and i was i was expecting i'm going to say four more minutes of talking and suddenly it's like oh now it's on me <laughs> so like i try to be i try to have a, a little bit more research done or okay not research that's a little much i try to have things in mind i want to right. say and things i want to ask and and of course i'm always looking for like good segues into the next topic uh usually fail Oh, but that's yeah. all right. And, that's a um, battleship pretension trademark. Yeah. And so, or if we have a good segue, we will say, hey, everyone, look at that segue. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, so yes, it, for me, the pressure is on. I enjoy them. I always enjoy them. But, uh, but yeah, I, I don't like the idea of letting the, letting the, uh, the guests do the heavy lifting, even though they usually am, wind up doing I it. I am fine with it. But anyway, I, that's all to say. We don't have a guest. Yeah. It's good time. to see you again. How you doing? <laughs> yeah, good. Which means we're also back to the conundrum of what do we talk about at the top of the show. All right. Now, we've already done six minutes of taking care of that, but... Um, TCB. <laughs> yes. Working overtime. <laughs> um, Workout. But I have come prepared. Um, something has been on my mind this week in regards to movies and, 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 and television in, in one, one, case, one of the cases that uh, mm-hmm. inspired me. Um, this week, I, you know, I've been watching uh, HBO's Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. um, and I also went to see... Um, I can talk about it because the movie will have come out by the time this comes up, but I saw X-Men First Class. Um, now... The review has, yes, been out uh, the review has several been out, days. And the movie has also been out. Um now, obviously, X Men First Class is PG thirteen, and Game of Thrones is heavily TVMA. Mm. Um, but they both have something that kind of bothered me. Okay, you and I have talked about since we started doing this show. One of our, I think, our first episode, we talked about how we find ourselves, the older we get, becoming more sensitive to gore and violence. Uh, yes, I have also, and maybe this is me becoming an old square, you know. Not a, uh, not a swinging bachelor anymore or whatever, but gratuitous TNA, as it were, mm-hmm. has, has, started, has annoyed me more and more recently. And okay. X-Men First Class has a lot of it, even though it's PG-13 uh, TNA. You know, mm-hmm. it's all underwear clad. Right. But still a lot of just needless... Take what you can get. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> right. And um, that's not actually the way I look at it, by the way. Sorry, everybody. I know that. Um, and Game of Thrones is very much not PG thirteen. And you know th- this this past this most recent episode, as of the recording, um, had a scene wherein um, a character whose name I can't remember because I can only think of him as Carcetti from The Wire because that's who plays him. Um, the yeah yeah 
You remember who Aiden Gillen? Is? Aiden Gillen is his name. Yes, but I can't remember the character's name anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, he he uh, sort of he owns a brothel, and he has this frankly awesome speech, but it takes place while he's also observing essentially a lesbian sex scene training session where two prostitutes are taking turns pretending to be the prostitute and pretending to be the man so they can learn how to fake it i guess okay for men and um it's an interesting idea mm-hmm. but like it is a, it was it, i sound like such a square but that scene was essentially pornography uh in, in certain points and um I found myself just getting, I mean, I don't like, you know, have to fan myself or anything. I get annoyed or angry. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the implication being, of course, in the past, it wouldn't have bothered you. Um, what? Why didn't it bother you then and why do you think it bothers you now? Hmm. I mean, I guess... I mean, if we go far enough back in the past, I was a teenage boy. Right. That's why it didn't bother me. Yeah. Because I wanted to see that wherever but, I could. But I would venture to say, and this is not a judgment on you, I would say probably up until, I'm going to, this is just a guess, I'm going to say four or five years ago, it, you would have been fine with it. I wouldn't have been as bothered by it. Like, I would, okay. have, I would have said, like, oh, that was unnecessary, but I would, it wouldn't have annoyed me. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, I guess I just, uh, the internet exists and pretty much everyone has it. So, pornography is not this, like, it's not what it was when I was a teenager where you have to, like, you know, if you can find someone's Playboy, you hold on to it with dear life or whatever, you know, for dear life. And pornography is available all the time to anyone, any kind of pornography you want. It's all out there. Mm -hmm. So, I feel like that puts more pressure on things like Game of Thrones to justify their use of 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 nudity and simulated sex so back okay so you're saying that back when porn was not quite so readily available because yes you're right with the internet with the internet now it's almost like it's at the speed of thought now yeah it's just it's like you know what i'd like to see the thing i'm seeing right now (laughs) uh but you're saying that so when uh when it wasn't so available, there would be movies, and of course, I mean, uh, you know, 80s horror movies had this right and left, uh, and you're saying that that was mm-hmm. perhaps a bit more accessible because for, let's say, teenage boys, which I would say is the audience for, you know, those horror movies, uh, that sort of titillation is not In quite theory, s- that's the audience. This is a tangent. In theory, that's the audience, but that's, as we learned last week with Lorraine Newman, the horror audience yeah. is not what people think it is. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Um, but, uh, well, for one, let's say this. I think that's who they were marketing to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, so titillation, perhaps, some, something that was purely for titillation, um, a little more acceptable because it, it wasn't everywhere. Nothing more acceptable, but it, like, uh, it took more. It meant something. Like when, when you know, um, like, uh, what's his name? Randy Metzger or... Um, uh, Roger Corman or these old like B movie guys, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's a big one that I'm missing out on that there's a big name that is escaping me right now because I'm sick. Blame it on me being sick, not on mm-hmm. me being a bad film, uh, <laughs> historian. They'll blame it on that. Um, like them, them doing that was kind of like, uh, 
it, it was part of like the mission statement or whatever. It was like they were doing something or saying something by saying this is going to be, you know, sexual and that meant something. Well, now, also there was a, there it was doesn't a f- mean anything. There was also a philosophy behind it uh, back in the in the Corman days because you you really couldn't find it anywhere else. Certainly not in movies. Certainly not on television. And so it was almost like we're going to put you know they've there's a line and we're going to get as close to it in some in some cases cross it. There was almost an ideology behind it, mm-hmm. which is let's see how much we can get away with. Whereas now it's like well you can, anybody can get away with anything. Uh, well, almost anything, anything that's legal. Um, and so. After a while, it's just like, yeah, okay, Game of Thrones. You haven't. Here's what you know. What here's how. You, here's what you could throw at me is uh, interesting characters doing interesting things. That's not something <laughs> you find everywhere. By the way, Game of Thrones has plenty of that. I complained right, early yeah, yeah. on. I had some problems with the early episodes, but just sidebar here: the last few episodes have been so fucking good mm-hmm. that uh, I, I'm I am now completely on board the Game of Thrones train. And that's another thing that you're that. That has it has in common with X Men First Class is you were a little iffy about it at first, but you wound up absolutely loving the movie. <laughs> That's so not true. <laughs> but you're in the yeah. minority on that one. I, I'm told. Uh, I yes, I learned. Uh, I don't. Um, I, I try not to read other people's reviews or get a sense of what people are thinking of the movie until after I've written my review. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it turns out uh, I am in the minority on X Men First Class. So. I guess you guys all love it. Have fun. It's fucking terrible. <laughs> <laughs> terrible? Come on, you didn't it, even say it was terrible in no, your review. Yeah, I didn't say it was terrible. It does stick. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, maybe this is why we get bad reviews. <laughs> it's because we just wind ourselves up until finally we wind up, I'm going to say, <clears throat> dismissing anybody's opinion that isn't ours. No, yeah. Um, uh, I will say about X-Men First Class, in all seriousness, there are parts of it, in fact, large parts of it, that do stink. And there are parts of it that are very good, or at least show the promise of being being very good, and that actually makes the movie worse, because why couldn't the movie just be about the good stuff, and why does it right. have to have all this dumb stuff in there? Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into details, because I know a lot of people haven't seen it, but you can read my review on the website. That's that. Any thoughts on the uh, nudity, simulated sex, TNA uh, discussion? Well, there is... I mean, it's interesting... Uh, you and I have had the idea, and and other and uh, listeners have suggested that we do an episode about sex and nudity in film, and we have not done it. Y- we haven't done that uh, episode yet. D- there's a very specific reason why we haven't done that episode yet. Yes, uh, we do want uh, to get a specific guest, and it remains to be seen whether or not we can get her. So, uh, so anyway, um, it is something that is intriguing to me because. After a while, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people that watched that scene in Game of Thrones or, or see the, the underwear-clad uh, characters in um, X-Men First Class, mm-hmm. and I'm sure they're like, oh, this is nice. But at the same time, like, after a while, that becomes boring because that's the norm. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't imagine, I don't know, do you think there's anybody who, when they talk about Game of Thrones, they're like, like oh, and they were being very risque over here, and just like, well, it's like Caligula did that in the... You know, early seventies. You know, like this is just being that. Yeah, I can't imagine people who are the kind of people who would watch Game of Thrones for that aren't watching Game of Thrones because they have that available to mm-hmm. them. They're not. It's not like the days when a teenager like me would have gladly sat through these sort of convoluted, talky, fantasy, medieval history exposition mm-hmm. scenes uh, <laughs> that 
make up about 65% of Game of Thrones, yeah. which that sounds like a condemnation, but it's, they're actually really awesome, uh, awesome things. There, there, back then, there are people who would have sat through that for the occasional, you know, uh, flash of tit, but uh, now those people can find it elsewhere, so that's not even the audience. And even back then, it's like, I'll just watch The Last Boy Scout if I want to see that, <laughs> you know, and that's at least uh, a little more fun and not quite so talky, yeah. but... Uh, Last Boy Scout, you, of course, uh, for people for people our age, that was the one. It's like, hey, did you hear that in The Last Boy Scout, this movie that should never be remembered for any particular uh-huh. reason, um, did you hear that that has uh, some, like, the, sl- the slightest whiff of nudity? Uh-huh. It's just very briefly in there, if I'm not, if I remember I, correctly. I, I can't remember. That wasn't the one for me. That, that was the one for, for my friends and I. Uh-huh. So, but, uh, so, I, I don't know. Maybe we all had, uh, all had our... Our go-to, it's like, oh, uh, what is it? Matt, uh, Matt Belknap of Never Not Funny, his is all that he always goes to is, I think, Trading Places, right? Yeah. With Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, so. I hesitate to even say what mine is. You know what? I'm not going to say it. Okay. Why is that? Um, because, weirdly, the actress in question, mm-hmm. who is naked in the movie, mm-hmm. I'm friends with their sister now. Oh. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's like, yeah, Clockwork Orange. Like, I thought it was going to be something no, that, like, awful. reflected on you. No. Okay, I got it. All right. Um, so that's that discussion put away for now. Yeah, how can we... I'm trying to think of... You're the master of segues here. Let's well, do we'll it. Get, well, it's, it's episode 220. Um, it's divisible by 10. It ends in a zero. You know what that means. And it's not a centennial or sesquicentennial. <laughs> that means years. But you know what I mean. It's not 100, 150. It's not an anniversary episode. Or anything like that. It's a, it's one of our profile episodes. Is mm-hmm. what it is. And uh, well, this came in a time. These movies came in a time before, certainly before the MPAA, and most of them in a country that didn't have the MPAA. Indeed. And um, pre-code. Yeah. In um, you know in, I mean in in, in some of these uh, very old silent movies. Um, you could, there, there actually was nudity, usually female nudity. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think how a casting agent would, would say it. Uh, upper frontal nudity, <laughs> I think is how it would be, would be described. Um, uh, you know, generally rather chaste, mm-hmm. you know, almost painterly. Uh, but the, you know, the, the, we're going to talk, be talking about a director that, um, I guess bucked trends or conventions in many ways, he was quite a uh, quite a rebel in his day. All right, and uh, <laughs> that director, as you already know from the episode title yeah, and have known for twenty <laughs> minutes, is F. W. Murnau. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that's worth mentioning right here from the beginning, as usual, we're going to go chronologically. Um, and uh, weirdly, I've seen more of these than you have. Well, you're, yes, you're the silent movie guy. I'm the silent. I, I you know what? First off. I've seen a fair amount of silent movies, but more specifically, uh, silent comedies are what I'm fascinated by. Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, uh, Harry Langdon, that sort of thing. Um, Silent film in general, of course, there are ones that I love, and I've seen, quite frankly, I feel like, with the exception of Chaplin and some Keaton and, you know, Metropolis and Potemkin, there's not... If you've seen any silent films beyond that, you've probably seen more than most. I would even say cinephiles. Um, there's this, there are the staples, and then there's 
ones that mm-hmm. even they haven't seen. Not and I'm like the first step beyond that. There are some people that have just seen literally everything, and it's right. it, it astounds me. So uh, so I've seen some, but like in this case, you've seen way more than I have because yeah. I have a hard time committing to this sort of thing. I don't like being told what to do. <laughs> but even okay. though the idea was the episode this was, was my your, idea. Yeah, we we tend to trade off. I mean, sometimes when we have a guest on for this profile episodes, usually mm-hmm. it's because that person has like has a specific interest. Like West Anthony on our, on our last yeah. uh, artistic profile, which was a lot of fun. With Bernard Her- yeah, Bernard Herman and and Paul Rust with uh, with Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um but yeah, we trade off picking and Tyler did pick this one and I took the assignment to heart. Absolutely. I watched a lot of these and had a lot of fun doing it. But what's worth mentioning, this is what I was going to say right at the beginning. Um and what's fascinating is that all the movies we're going to talk be talk about going to be talking about mm-hmm. sick sick um were made in less than 10 years yeah and that's fascinating to me i've got i've got nine movies on my list and you know some of these are more polished than others you know yeah. they made movies a lot faster mm-hmm. back then smaller crews of course not having sound meant <laughs> there's a part of the crew yeah. you don't need um but it really is uh it, it, the, people talk about, I guess, you know, Kurt Cobain or Janis Joplin or Jimi Hendrix, you know, James Dean, Heath Ledger, people who died before their time and think, what more could they have given us? Right. You know, I would put uh, Montgomery Clift on that list. Hmm. Um, John Candy, that's what I put on that yeah, list. Yeah. And Phil Hartman. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I always, this is another bit of a tangent. I wonder sometimes why montgomery cliff doesn't have as big a reputation of like a uh, cool outsider guy as james dean does and I, th- I think it's because maybe he was a little too outside and weird and too destructive and also you know gay uh yeah i think i think the there was the gay thing i think it was the type of role because that's the thing like a james dean took iconic roles when I think mm-hmm. of Montgomery Cliff, I think of a real actor. Now, of course, right. James Dean was a real actor. There's no mm-hmm. question about it. But he was also a certain type of actor where people said, like, oh, gold, pure gold. We can use this guy. Whereas Montgomery Cliff, he really, I think, was a character actor mm-hmm. who occasionally got lead roles. You see him in something like Judgment in Nuremberg. Man, right. he, like, hits that role out of the park. And you'd never think that a leading man could play that. And it's because he's, I don't think he's a leading man. I think he occasionally got that. Yeah. He's, he, he's saying, sort of like Johnny Depp in that way. If, like, cool, good-looking, mysterious, weird guys mm-hmm. like, you know, Ed, uh, Edgar Allan Poe can romantically drink themselves to death. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why, why doesn't Montgomery Clift have the, at least that uh, that following? Does he have a, like... Oh, I'm sure he a does. Gay, a gay following in, like, Probably. that community? I, know I feel that, like, like he's not talked about. Well, it's certainly not like a Rock Hudson because, again, Rock Hudson was a big star. Well, I mean, he's got the name Rock Hudson. Come yeah. on. Either a private detective or a big uh, movie star, whatever. Right. But, uh, but yeah, Montgomery Clift, I'm sure he. I'm sure there is a following. I'm sure there are some I hope people so. who... I think yeah. Montgomery Clift is awesome. He's anyway, pretty great. I forget where I, was, where I was going with this. Well, you're talking about people that were people stuck down in their... their yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, after we were not, F.W. Murnau came to Hollywood in 1927, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, or at least that's when his first uh, American film was made. Made four films in a very short period. Uh, or I think one wasn't even completed, right? Uh, Taboo, was that completed? Oh, yeah. 
I th- I don't remember. I think it was I released. I haven't but, seen it. Yeah. Um, and then died in a car accident. Yes. Much like James Dean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just uh, feel like he. This is a guy that should be put in that category. What more could he have given us? You know what? What could he have done in the sound era, in the color era? That's exactly what I. What the way I. I look at uh, Murnau because if you look at some, some, of the, some of the movies we'll be talking about, for me, uh, Last Laugh is the pinnacle of his uh, abilities. Um, I, but, of course, he's, he was great uh, as a filmmaker in, I would almost say, revolutionizing what the camera can do well, let's, and the role that it plays. Let's save the Last Laugh talk for when we get to Right, right. Let's be uh, just talking generalities here yeah yeah because i have things i want to say about last and the, and the, the same thing work. about the the thing about uh the the role of the camera um could be said about sunrise it could be said about faust um mm-hmm. i've only seen uh four of his films unfortunately um but you look at what he did with the camera there and you know when people talk about just when people talk about the advances in in camera techniques up and and how that was struck down when sound came along Mm-hmm. To me, Murnau is the first person I think of because he did such amazing things with the camera. But, you know, once sound started to uh, become a little more fluid, I feel like he could have really led the charge. Mm-hmm. And I think he could have been he could have been like the German Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. You know, people look at Citizen Kane as suddenly the can like he does amazing things with the camera again and yeah. and that sort of thing and so uh Even yeah it is the, a shame you know speaking of uh james Zeno, i was just thinking about east of eden recently um got it uh, my my girlfriend got the dvd from netflix i haven't seen it in years but uh you know elliot kazan was also a guy who was probably took a lot of cues from orson wells mm-hmm. in terms of uh of framing and i uh you know renowned Probably could have blown him out of the water and wouldn't have, wouldn't have named names either. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say that we can lionize these people when they died before they had a chance. <laughs> so he would not have named names. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't think so. But um, he was. Uh, in fact, his name probably would have been named. He was <laughs> yeah. part of very, some very far left uh, organizations. But um, yeah, when I say a German Orson Welles, I don't mean to imply he would take his cues from Orson Welles. Quite the opposite. In fact, I think he probably yeah. would have arrived there, maybe even a few years before. Yeah, maybe like Kazan would have been borrowing from from, from Renau. Yeah. And by the way, I don't mean to I mean obviously Kazan, you know, will burn in hell for what he did, but um as a filmmaker I am a big fan. <laughs> so you would have been uh, the Nick Nolte or the Ed Harris uh, sitting down and not applauding when yeah. uh, when Kazan got his uh, lifetime achievement Oscar. Yeah, I would have been um as dashing as Ed Harris and as drunk as Nick Nolte. <laughs> uh yeah, it's uh, okay. This has nothing to do with anything. I have two things to 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 say. One is, as much as I like Ed Harris as an actor, I was I was reflecting on him uh, a few days ago, and I thought, you know, I can't think of a, and I don't know anything about him personally. I can't think of a potentially more humorless actor than Ed Harris. I used to say someone like Sean Penn, but you see in Sweet and Low Down, he can be funny. I don't know if I've ever seen Ed Harris in a comedy, and if he was, I'm sure he would do well, but. He just doesn't seem like the guy who laughs easily. Uh-huh. So that's one thing. And the other one is, uh, speaking of Ilya Kazan, like, when they gave him the Lifetime Achievement Award, granted he made some great films, there's no question about it, but do you think they were purposely courting controversy when they chose to give it to him? At the time, it never would have occurred to me, but now that you say it, yeah, probably. I think so. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. We're not here to talk about Ilya Kazan. Stop bringing him up, David. Okay. 
Let's talk about it now. I'll start with a 1921 film called The Haunted Castle. Um, now, some of these films, obviously, there's the big ones that people know. Mm-hmm. We're talking, you know, we've already mentioned Nosferatu and mm-hmm. Sunrise and The Last Laugh, and these um, are big enough films, and were big enough films then to have um, been better preserved and have nice DVD transfers. Yeah, there are. He did. He made many films in 1919 and, and 1920. That are lost. Right. This is the earliest one that I could find on DVD was The Haunted Castle from 1921. Mm-hmm. But even these, even this and a few other ones, um, they clearly weren't in great shape. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and so it, it can be a little hard to watch. And Haunted Castle is definitely like, even on the DVD, the sound is not great, um, which is, uh, you know, the, uh, not the sound. There's no sound. It's silent. The picture is not great. I'm mm. sick. Well, <laughs> for a moment I thought like, well, that just seems uh, like some like the DVD company didn't <laughs> yeah. do their job. You yeah. know, you can re-record the sound, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, the picture is not great. Um, it's uh, you know very sort of grainy and degraded and mm-hmm. noisy. Oh, okay, there you go. It's, it's silent but noisy, um, which is <laughs> you child. Uh, I'm such an idiot. I'm so sorry. Which is already uh, with with the movie like The Haunted Castle already very hard to follow there's a lot mm. of like people posing as other characters oh and, good like so you already, you can't tell the difference between the character no. like well that's a man and that's a woman i know that much and that's kind of all you can uh you can do but um uh what i do want to mention with Haunted castle is this this uh labyrinthine plot that it has because in in a couple of his early films um even into like Faust, I mean, I guess these are all kind of early since he died so young. Yeah. Um, there's a lot going on plot wise. Like a lot of his films are very plot heavy. Um, and, uh, and that definitely is the case here. This is kind of a murder mystery type story. It's a a bunch of people. It's the standard sort of bunch of people gathering for a hunting weekend, Mm -hmm. you know, and this time it's a, it's a castle. And I don't, I think the haunted castle, that can't have been the original German name because there aren't ghosts in this movie or anything. Hmm. (laughs) Um, it's perhaps all those people were dead, David. Think about it. Um, basically a guy shows up unannounced for the weekend who this whole society or whatever thinks, murdered someone else years ago and he's been Mm -hmm. in hiding and um really it was someone else who was also there Mm -hmm. who did the murder and this person has shown up twice as two different people i can't it's been a while since i saw it but that is surprisingly complex for a silent film even if they like extensively even if they extensively used you know uh cards and such which I know that Murnau was not a big fan of. Yeah. He, he liked to tell stories almost exclusively visually. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's um, that's another thing you'll see a lot here is, um, you know, so many of the, the... You were talking about the beginning, the silent movies that people think of, the silent comedies or, mm-hmm. you know, Nosferatu is one, uh, you know, Potemkin is one. Um, they tend to have big visual mm-hmm. <laughs> like sequences or um you know just motifs that mm-hmm. are visual you know the the uh silent comedians obviously were a treat to watch right. you know um Murnau was good at taking things that could have been stage plays 
in some cases probably were, you know, Tartuffe certainly was. Mm -hmm. Um, And making them interesting and fun to watch. You know, the Haunted Castle is hints at this. Mm -hmm. Again, not very well preserved, so I don't feel like I have full authority to Mm -hmm. judge it, but it seems like it's a, a hint of what's to come and kind of a slight film. Well, and also to go back to some of the lost films, of course, they're lost. We can't see them in their uh, entirety, but there are stills. And the stories themselves are also very theatrical. His background was theater. And I think if you look at now, of course, uh, you you know, you talk about the Haunted Castle and I would actually say the same with Nosferatu, Uh, his staging and where and the way he uses the camera is theatrical in the sense that if you look if you were to look at Last Laugh or Sunrise, um, you would find it hard to believe it was the same director um, because he was, you know, this is not necessarily a flaw because he's because he also brought uh, theatricality with performances mm-hmm. and art direction and so he still there's nothing wrong with that but like as far he seemed to especially once he teamed up with Emil Jennings oh yeah and and so I feel like he was almost sort of the Toshira Mifune of <laughs> silent German cinema <laughs> I'd say that's about Sw- right swinging for the fences yeah but uh, and so you you almost sense and we haven't gotten into Nosferatu yet but uh, one thing that always fascinated me about that film is that the the German expressionistic elements are pu- uh, almost purely in the art direction and makeup, not much in can- uh, you know cinematography, and so it almost seemed as though he was still kind of finding his sea legs mm-hmm. uh, as far as being a film director as opposed to someone involved in in the theater. And it makes me, but having seen stills from you know The Boy in Blue and Satan and Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde and all that. Um, Having seen stills from those, it looked they they really do almost look like uh, filmed plays. But he wasn't opposed to uh, shooting on location and that sort of thing, which in itself is rather impressive considering how many German expressionist filmmakers like to just create out reality from whole cloth inside a studio and that sort of thing. So I don't know. It's it's interesting to watch his evolution as a filmmaker mm-hmm. get more comfortable with the camera as a storytelling device. Yeah. Well, to get into Nosferatu, we'll see. There's there's, there's two sort of main uh, themes that are going to show up a lot in his work, um, and that's uh, trickery and temptation. Yeah. Um, Temptation specifically comes in so much later, but he's also kind of a... um, uh, precursor to, or, or I guess he was sort of a contemporary, actually, of of Alfred Hitchcock, mm. um, in 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 terms of uh, pulling one, pulling a fast one on the audience, and characters pulling a fast one on each other. Mm-hmm. It's something you see uh, in 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 a lot of these films, um, but uh, you know, as they as they go on, he gets more and more uh, moralistic. Not that he was ever not, right? But um, that plays a big part later on. So let's get into Nosferatu. Okay. Which also um, has this element of trickery, specifically in its in its climax. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I guess this is a spoiler for Nosferatu. It's from 1922. Yeah. Um, uh, the idea is the only way to the only way to beat the vampire mm-hmm. is to tempt him with. Is it a virgin's blood? I think. I believe so. Yes, um, and that, and he will sort of have so much fun 
drinking this virgin's blood mm-hmm. that he'll lose track of time and then you get him in the sunlight. Get him. You get him. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know what? I'm not, uh, now that I think about it, I'm not 100% sure it's a virgin's blood. I'm sh- that That is probably what it is given right. the, the circumstances that uh, this is like a fiance and all that sort of thing. Um, but either way, it's some it's something pure. Right. Um, and something that's, can be corrupted. Right, which uh, is one of his themes. Yeah, very much so. Um, certainly, uh, another thing that, that I've noticed just in the few films of his that I've seen is the idea of corruption and disease and plague. Mm-hmm. And just because, of course, disease and, fra- and and plague is about the frailty of humanity physically. And I don't know, It's you mentioned that he's he's moralistic, and I feel like he's somebody who is deeply deeply cynical about humanity and mm-hmm. in the sense that he just assumes that while of course many of the characters that we'll talk about go on to do good things they are often always going to do just depraved things some of them do it some of them want to do it and eventually don't which one could say is a hopeful message but yeah i would say he <clears throat> you're right i think his worldview is cynical but he more often than not chooses to write uh or you know uh develop lead characters that overcome that yeah he's not cynical about his 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 lead characters usually are the beacon of hope for him Mm -hmm. in the long run after a number of trials and uh and temptations and maybe that's maybe that's why i feel like he's more he as a filmmaker is more cynical than hopeful because when things turn hopeful it almost seems like an afterthought or he spends so much time on the cynical and the depravity that with, with the exception of, we'll get to this later in uh, of sunrise um he spends so much time on temptation and depravity and that sort of thing that one feels like he really uh, f- philosophically feels much strong much much more strongly about this as the human condition mm-hmm. as opposed to like maybe throw in some hope. Maybe he even feels that hope. Maybe he wants to make us feel that hope, but whatever the case may be, he certainly seems to feel like our natural inclination is towards evil and selfishness. And we're almost always going to give in except maybe this one guy won't and we'll right. be in good shape. So what do we say about Nosferatu specifically? Um, well, it, I mean, it's, it's Bram Stoker's Dracula, but not, yeah, not technically. Yeah, I mean the story is exactly the same. Yeah, I mean he takes the, a couple of names here. And, yeah, there's Orlock instead of Dracula. There's uh, Hutter. No, is it Hutter or Sutter? I think it's I think, Hutter. I think it's Hutter. Hutter instead of Harker. There's Knock, Knock instead, instead of Renfield. Of Renfield. Um, and so, yeah, and the and the the basic stories are are the same. Um, of course. He does, I think, simplify uh, Dracula a great deal, but um, but yeah. And what is interesting is one of the big changes that he makes is that the the character of of Dracula sometimes, as in uh, like the Francis Ford Coppola uh, interpretation, but also in the original novel, sometimes Dracula is seen as quite hideous, other times incredibly alluring, mm-hmm. and and other times just, you know, uh, an animal of some sort. And so the difference between... Uh, and and at the time, uh, on stage, Dracula was, you know, often the alluring one. Mm-hmm. And 
So for Murnau to make... Sort of like a James Dean or a Montgomery Clift would play him. One could say that, yes. (laughs) (sighs) I hate you so much. (laughs) But uh, so for Murnau to... And and he actually did not design the... He did not come up with the design for uh, Count Orlock. It was... uh, I think it was Albin Grau, his uh, producer. But, um, But either way, those were just like sketches and... Murnau, to his credit, said, yeah, I think I want to do as go as close to that as possible and creates in uh, the actor Max Shrek and just creates this rat like like even as far as monsters go, (laughs) he didn't create like a wolf like or a bat like he creates just a just something that is just a pest Uh Um, and something that, of course, carries pestilence and, and that sort of thing. And so like. There is nothing alluring about that character. It, he is thin and white as a sheet and has these little rat teeth, doesn't even have like the cool looking fangs, and just has these long uh, fingernails. Just nothing about him is the kind of thing that you're like, oh, this puts me at ease. Or <laughs> just, it's repellent. Yeah. And and I, I, I respect that a great deal that he'll build a movie around that and... I don't know. It's uh, that is the first instance of expressionism in the f- not the first, but like it's the in in my view the most important element of expressionism in the film. In the same way that I would say Dick Tracy is expressionism, right. where the character's inner evil uh, ugliness ugliness yeah. uh, is is so rampant in them that it becomes who they are physically. Right. <clears throat> well, you talk about. Um uh, pestilence and plague, and um, another another thing about Nosferatu that is not uh, the sort of romantic Dracula story that we know mm-hmm. is the act of like the actual feeding. You know, if you if you look at something like say Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever talked about the TV show before, um, but the actual act of a vampire killing someone is supercharged with like sexuality and there's like a swooning nature and like this sort of, uh, you know, dominance and submission. It's a very Mm. sexual, uh, thing in here. It's just kind of gross. Like it, he really does seem to be feeding off the -hmm. way that a, that a parasite almost would. Well, they also compare it to a spider. There's a, Uh there's a scene where knock, uh, witnesses a spider, uh, cocooning, uh, that's probably not the word they use, right? Co- well, I'll just say cocooning a fly and then feasting on it. Okay. And just like, yeah, just basically draining it of blood. And there's nothing alluring about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, with the possible exception of the idea of sucking blood. Right. But that doesn't, you don't get the impression that's how Orlock does it. He just like uses his little rat-like teeth. Yeah, especially, I mean, the Hutter's first night there, he wakes up, you know, in other vampire stories we're used to, once the vampire sinks its teeth in your neck mm. you're dead it's gonna drink till you're dead mm. but he like wakes up with bite marks on him like he really is just gonna keep him around and feed off him it's yeah. really gross yeah and 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 parasite is i think the the best way and of course a spider is not a parasite a tick uh-huh. is a little more yeah. parasitic and i think that might actually be uh the arachnid ticks are arachnids right i have no idea damn anyway i'm not um, on whatever studies that <laughs> 
Um, that's that's for another podcast. That's, I'm not here to tell you what's an arachnid and what isn't. But um, scorpion. So, uh, but yes, just the idea of just there's nothing romantic, and I don't mean like actual romance, but there's nothing even fun about this monster. Yeah, he's like. Yeah a tapeworm. He's like just these disgusting things that you just don't even have any patience for. Um, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> you all right there? Yeah. But, um, you've got me thinking that I kind of want to watch it. This was the one that I've seen least recently. Okay. Uh, um, I've seen Nosferatu most times of anything on this list, mm-hmm. but least recently. So this is giving me a little trouble, but it's, it's making me want to watch it again. Um, uh, because this idea you said at the beginning, go ahead. What version do you have? <laughs> I have the uh, public domain Walgreens 399 version with typo negative music. That's the one. That's the one I used to have, and then I got uh, the Kino version oh, uh, for Christmas. Hooray for Kino, man! And me watching, me catching up on on FW Murnau movies. Thank you to Kino. Yeah, it's you know for as much as I, if the, if only there was a Kino cast. There's a Criterion <laughs> cast, and Criterion. And it's great. Oh, absolutely. We've yeah. been on it. It's a lot of fun. It's even great when we're not on it. I'm sorry. I, I, you wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Um, but uh, I have nothing but contempt for those guys. I like us. Um, anytime we're on, I just fast forward to our comments. But the uh, but yeah, as much as people talk about how great Criterion is, and it is, yeah. Kino is out there like making movie, uh, distributing movies, and like really, uh, you know, re-energizing them for. And there's there's not a huge market for it, yeah. and uh, and I I have a great deal of respect for what Kino does. Yeah, me too. So I'm sorry. Go on. Yes. Uh, but you you were talking about um, him having a cynical worldview, and I'm just thinking about um, the sequence in the film where Orlock has shipped himself on a boat, mm-hmm. and he's you know coming down the uh, you know to I guess to Germany. Is that where he's supposed to be coming? To? I think so. Yeah, they changed. Uh, right. That's another thing they changed from the Dracula story. But just down whatever river he's going on, mm-hmm. there's pestilence spreading, or people dying, mm-hmm. and and I think livestock even dying along the river, and everyone um, on the boat eventually dies by the time it gets to gets mm-hmm. to port. Um, and it does have this feeling of like it's almost biblical, like a like a plague coming. Oh yeah, like like apocalyptic like this like this is like the four horsemen or whatever are coming down the river like it it feels like this isn't just about this story something is coming for us for you the audience and the idea of plague and pest and the, even the four horsemen is something that uh Murnau will visit again in uh, faust mm-hmm. but uh yeah and also as strange as it sounds okay and this might just be me putting something on the on onto the film uh the idea of this rather pathetic monster he is repellent we don't like him mm-hmm. we have no sympathy for him um you would have to you'd have to watch the herzog version of nosferatu with klaus kinski for the film to give you you know to engender sympathy uh, for the character but i have a certain degree of sympathy for the character because i don't know like imagine i don't know okay <laughs> You talking about everywhere he goes, he causes mm-hmm. uh, plague. Imagine, I, I have this image of Pigpen from <laughs> uh, Peanuts. Uh-huh. Okay, and I just imagine 
uh, Count Orlock walking around, and he just has this cloud of pestilence, and everywhere he goes, people get it and people die. And, of course, there's this drive in him to feed off of people. That's the only way he'll get any satisfaction. And I find myself wondering, like, how how horrible an an existence that must be, where people die even when you get close to them. People just don't even want to be near you. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are a leper in a lot of ways. But even then, a leper that you can't even be content to be away from people. You have to be near them because that's the only way you can live. It just seems like such a horrifying idea. Do you think you get that, that, that empathy from chiefly from Murnau or from Max Shrek's performance? Uh, I think I think probably the performance and also just what I bring to it. Like right. I've often found right. vampires to be kind of sad creatures. Yeah. Um, but then the addition, I guess maybe this is Murnau a little bit because the addition of the pestilence and the idea that I can't even get close to someone. Right. Right. Uh, I think that engenders in me a great deal of sympathy for the character. Well, um, speaking of sympathetic characters, let's move on to 1920, also in 1922, a film called Phantom. Um which is, again, like The Haunted Castle, um, surprising that this story is a silent movie because it's not, there's no visual hook to it. Hmm. The idea is that there's a guy, a regular working guy in this German village, and one day he's walking, I think, to work. Um, he wants to be a poet, by the way, but he has a job. Um, he's walking to work, and a, car- oh, a beautiful woman in a carriage comes by, doesn't see him, and knocks into him. And by the way, I don't know... <laughs> I gotta watch this again, or you should watch this scene. I don't know what kind of stunt guys they're employing. It looks painful when this horse <laughs> knocks this guy uh, on his head. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what happens. And he bumps his head. And from that point on, for the rest of the movie, these, which is a little overlong, kind of like Faust, which we'll get to. Yep. Um, uh, for the rest of the movie, all he can do is fixate on this woman. Mm-hmm. He's obsessed with her. And, you know... Uh, he also starts to believe more in himself as a poet than he should. Mm. It's pretty much said by other characters. He's not that great a poet. Okay. And he stops working. He gets fired. He becomes convinced that someone wants to buy all his poems and he's going to be rich. And he just, like, this bump on the head has really, like, knocked something loose in him mm-hmm. to where he is. And I feel like it's about... um I guess the outsider or artist or the dreamer type of person, you know, um, this guy's obsessed with what he considers to be love with this woman, you know, and, uh, and, and in living off his poetry and, and living this kind of life and, um, becomes not only fired, but kind of shunned by society for being such a, you know, in, in his eyes, he's a, he's a, he's a struggling poet in their eyes. He's just a layabout. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Which is interesting, having not seen the film, but knowing a little bit about Murnau, I do know that his father did not like the idea of him becoming an actor. Um, he, mm-hmm. he thought that he was going to live a penniless existence and that there was that he would never get have any success at it. I think he wanted him to be uh, either a doctor or a lawyer or right. something like that. Um, no, I'm, you know what? I'm sorry. Teacher is what he wanted to be and what he wanted uh, his his son to be. And so I, I find myself wondering if that uh, entered into this kind of uh, this kind of film. Um now I, I will say that this um this movie is also uh very beautiful to look at. 
um, and you know, compellingly framed, but it becomes kind of like again, like Faust, just adds on a few too many plot twists toward the end where he's like planning a robbery and then there's an accidental murder and then he goes to prison and it just sort of like yeah. it just keeps like laying the punishments on this guy mm. um, and then at the end he is writing his memoir and that's it's sort of like the framing device hmm. for the movie um, and so yeah um, it seems like you know I feel like I've referenced this before on the podcast there's this um, great scene in Six Degrees of Separation which I know is a film but was a play first um of Donald Sutherland in the movie talking about seeing his kids as toddlers and going to their preschool class and seeing their hand paintings. And this guy's an art dealer and collector in the movie. Uh, Donald Sutherland is. And he says like to the teacher, like every one of these kids is a genius. These are all brilliant. How do you, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. And she said, I just know when to take, when to take the paintings away from them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a couple of points where maybe, Someone should have stepped in and said, that's enough for now. <laughs> that's yeah. enough for now, for now. Nice. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, that is something, because actually I, uh, I watched uh, Sunrise today, and it's kind of a, a feeling that I get from him uh, in, in that film, but uh, not in the sense that there's a lot of plot developments, but just like making a, like making a certain point many, many times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not here to tell you that Murnau was a subtle director. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, he was he primarily expressionistic. There's not a great deal of subtlety in there, um, because, and especially the way that the types of movies that he made were often, one could venture to say they were almost like fables. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they kind of have that vibe to them. You know, what movie I'm reminded of. Speaking of uh, Criterion, as you were, um, Akira Kurosawa's. Ikiru, I don't know if you've seen that one. Um, a lot of people love it, and it has a lot going for it, but I've always felt it was a strong early effort from the director. Mm-hmm. But it it suffers from this being, making its point a few too many times, being overlong, having too many plot developments late in the movie, no. and yeah, just being an overly simplified fable. And you um, know, oh, I'm sorry, go on. I don't know, we, I just feel like we've been comparing... Orson Welles and Zen. Yeah. I just want to keep uh, keep comparing him to other directors. So Akira Kurosawa, add him to the list of well, people I, co- I compare Murnau to. Well, there is a certain degree of... I don't know. I, I understand it to a certain extent because... Uh, yeah, sure, I'll bring this up. Um, people have mentioned like on, on More Than One Lesson where I, because the episode's usually me by myself, I have a great deal of... Well, not a great deal. I have total control over what goes out there. And I know that when left to my own devices, I will often make the same point like three times. Mm-hmm. And usually it's it's because I feel like, oh, I've said it once and I'm okay with that. But maybe I'll say it, I'll say it a different way. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe that'll be the way that someone's like, ah, I, I, I didn't get it until then. <laughs> and then I'll do it a third time. And it's like, well, maybe, okay, there we go. And I wonder if, if as directors, you know, like you said, Murnau is, he has philosophies that he wants to put out there. He is, he does tend to moralize. And maybe he really wants to get points across. 
And the deal with fables is that they often have a point of view. And as a filmmaker, I, th- I really feel like he often had total control and wanted to get his point across. And it's like, okay, that didn't do it for you. Maybe this will. Maybe this image will get it across. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, as, as silly as it sounds, part of me feels like I'd rather have more of him than less. Well, this brings us to the next movie. All right. On my list. Um, 1924 is The Finances of the Grand Duke. Uh, also one that's not in great condition. But this is a movie that is also full of plot. <laughs> lots and lots of plot. Mm-hmm. But not overlong. It's a pretty brisk uh, movie. I can't remember what the runtime is. But it it really moves at a good pace. Uh, and part of that is because it's the kind of movie you don't see Murnau making a lot. It's sort of an action comedy. <laughs> um it's uh it's got a it's got a farcical element with uh you know it keeps adding more and more characters it's got espionage and intrigue but in kind of a fun way i mean the the general story is that there's a grand duke who is the ruler of this tiny island nation mm-hmm. and, you know the entirety of his i guess purview is like his mansion and a few other acres of the island that some villagers live on it's not um it's not very big, but he's run out of money, and um, other people are trying to, uh, by hook or by crook, get the island from him, and um, in a lot of ways, some of them cunning, some of them hilariously happenstance. Okay. Uh, things end up working out the right way, but it, you know, it, it jumps all the movie jumps all over Europe, and 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 has uh, it keeps adding more characters. It's a it's a really fun watch. Again, the DVD, you know. It's as good as they could do, you know. Mm. The, the, it, they clearly uh, pulled from different uh, different prints that were found because the sort of uh, color and state of the print will uh, uh, of the image will change from scene to scene. Sometimes, mm-hmm. um, it's uh, um, if you can, if you can deal with that, it's it's very much worth a watch because it's it's uh, an unconventional film from Renau and uh, a lot of fun. Would you like to take a break? No, I'm good. You sure? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. All right. I don't have to cut this out. Okay. All right. Sorry. Um, <laughs> okay. So are, are you uh, ready to move on to? Uh, Let's move the next on. One? Okay. Also in 1924, the last laugh. Take it away, Tyler. Okay. Uh, so this is my favorite Murnau film. Of course, that's based on the fact that I've seen four of them. Uh, but also, well, it's I've one seen of... nine, and it's my favorite as well. Okay. In fact, probably one of the best films ever made. Yeah, uh, and it's it is one of my favorite. Uh, favorites of all time it is uh astounding and it and of course you've seen i mean you saw phantom you saw uh the finances of the grand duke so like you've seen him evolve as a filmmaker more mm-hmm. than i have and if he's making you know action comedies <laughs> uh you know with emil yawnings and conrad veit as a as a you know a couple of cops uh you know who <laughs> you know, don't really like, like each like other a comedy like a suspense comedy. Okay. There's, not a, there's not a whole lot of actual action. Okay. But anyway, that's, uh, that's beside the point. That's me being, I don't know, semantics. Fair enough. Uh, so, what are you doing? I'm playing with the stuff in your... T- We're in a new part of your apartment. All right, fair there's enough. There's new things for me to toy around with, so I'm playing with the stuff in your apartment. It's interesting. My cat has the same instinct. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> He's lived here for four years. <laughs> so, what do you... <laughs> Those are Jen's photo cards. Right. So anyway, uh, so The Last Laugh, I think, is when I watched it, uh, I had seen a couple of sequences uh, back in school, and I remember at the time being like, wow, this is really 
amazing because the only Murnau I had seen when I saw those sequences was Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. And while there was, he had definitely had a visual flair... Yeah, there's a lot going on in Nosferatu visually in terms of of, <clears throat> of light and dark, mm-hmm. you know, of of angle and, and lens yeah. uh, choices. But, yeah, there's a new element added in The Last Laugh, which is the uh, sort of <laughs> floating on a wind, floating on the wind nature of the camera movement. Oh, absolutely. It, it's, it's astounding. He... It, I would like I if if I was if I had just seen Nosferatu I would not say this but when I saw Last Laugh and even though and I saw Faust in school uh, as well and I and I didn't get a strong sense of this with Faust but with Last Laugh that's when I started thinking like this guy is a virtuoso filmmaker like he just can make the camera do anything he wants mm-hmm. which is something you didn't see very much at the time and especially the fact that he chooses to employ it with such a such a small story. Mm-hmm. The idea. The idea here is uh, there's a character. Yeah, this is it. It does differ from a lot of the things, things we talked about. That there's. It's, it's remarkably very, simplistic. Yeah, very straightforward. And so, like, so the story. Uh, Emil Yannings plays uh, uh, a hotel porter, and he's an older guy. He's been doing this for years, and he's starting to get to the point where he can't do it quite so well. And he get, but he's a, he's well respected in his community. Uh, it is notable that his character is never given a name. That's not an unusual thing for silent film, but mm-hmm. he is known in the film as the hotel porter. Mm-hmm. But then he gets busted down to bathroom attendant. Right. So it's like, well, if you're known as the hotel porter, are you now going to be known as the bathroom attendant? And so, uh-huh. like, and his Did wife you see is the, actually. In, hmm. um, uh, research or you know, studying up or whatever for this episode, I saw a funny thing that Murnau said about the movie. He's like, "It's clearly fantasy because everyone knows that a washroom attendant makes more than a doorman." <laughs> I didn't know that actually, <laughs> but uh, maybe it was the times. You yeah. know, everyone, every wa- every washroom had an attendant. Every door had a man. But uh, but he is a he's kind of a proud man. Yeah, early on, and I think. The reason the washroom is symbolically lesser than the mm-hmm. than the doorman when he's the doorman, he's sort of the public face of the hotel. Absolutely, he represents the hotel, and that means a lot to him. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, this particular washroom is not just a bathroom; it's like down a set of stairs. It's yeah. like it's essentially the dungeon. Well, and it's also, you know, the bathroom is where you go to do things that are largely undesirable. <laughs> and this is the guy who hangs out and probably has that stink on him all day. And so, yeah, it is definitely a downgrade. And what's more is you discover that it's not just in this guy's mind. Like, people are, his wife is a little embarrassed at the idea of him being, no longer being the, you know, she takes pride in who he is as well. And so, the story is pretty simple. And I wanted to bring this up uh, earlier when you talked about, when you and I were talking about the stories and the plots uh, of a Murnau film. Yeah. And that, he goes into surprising detail f- for a silent filmmaker. I would say that while the emotions are very large in his films, they are also very, very complex. Like you can't really boil them down to one thing. I mean, you, I guess you could say like, well, the hotel porter, he's a prideful man. And then he has a pride taken away. 
but it's deeper than that. It's also mm-hmm. his very it's his very identity as a man and as a member of the community as a human being. And that's and there are no cards, by the way, in uh, the last laugh until a surprising turn of events right. towards the end. We'll get to that. And so, like, there's no cards. This is all purely visual. So he has to, and maybe that's one of the reasons why the story is so simple because the emotion, the emotional state of this character is so complex. And I think the performance by Emil Yannings is wonderful, even though it is kind of over the top. It's comedic and heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And then, he al- th- oh, go ahead. In addition to, you know what? You should finish your thought, actually, because okay. I was going to take us in another direction. Okay. And and one thing that I like is that it, this film is told completely from this man's point of view mm-hmm. at all times. Mm-hmm. It, this is when, like, Murnau really uses the camera to create emotion and make us feel his emotion, whether it be, like, a, a fantasy sequence where it's like, oh, I'm as strong as can be. I can mm-hmm. lift this trunk, no problem. Yeah. You know, uh, to, you know him being like drunk and just it always puts us in his state no matter no matter what his emotional state is it could be triumph or or whatever and what's what's astounding is how well not not only does he show you the entire inner life of this man Mm -hmm. but also without title cards he really gives you a sense of the man's world Mm -hmm. both the world of the hotel which we only we actually we see uh we see at the beginning Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, an extended sequence of like cars pulling up, you know, and him getting the, uh, the baggage and right. stuff. That's a, that's right at the beginning of the film, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, we learn a lot about that there, but then once he banished to the washroom, we see very little of the hotel except for the washroom. Right. But then his sort of, I don't know, tenement building or <laughs> wherever he lives, mm-hmm. uh, is very well drawn and you, you know, you understand the relationships between the characters and the way that the just the way that this little society within a society works. Mm -hmm. And not only is that because of his, you know, uh, deftness with the camera, but also because he built the entire thing. Yeah. Uh, Like, like another, again, like Alfred Hitchcock, another guy we can compare him to with rear window. Yeah. Uh, he, he built this entire thing in a, I mean, just him, just Mm -hmm. for now, just, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the hammer and some planks and elbow grease and he got that thing up <laughs> and of course lots and lots of uh drugs <laughs> but uh yeah and i also and i do sort of want to talk about that ending because it's such an interesting idea uh one that i would say i can't think of another movie that does it except for adaptation um where the filmmaker we can spoil this right yeah i think, I think I, so. i'm okay with that all right the filmmaker basically gets involved uh-huh. by saying, like, okay, this guy's story is too damn sad. Uh-huh. And nobody wants to see a sad story, right? And don't we all want good things for this man? And so suddenly the guy comes into, the, the hotel porter comes into a great deal of money. Uh-huh. And then we see a great deal of style in performance, in cinematography, and in the events themselves, because so far, the events all seem like they could, like a thing that could happen. Of mm-hmm. course, in the fantasy sequences, like we're going inside someone's head, but the the facts of what are ha- of what's happening, um, that's that's all very real. But then in this moment, like with this guy, when the guy suddenly comes into money and he just becomes Mister Moneybags and he starts throwing it around and all that, he's got this 
I think a comically large cigar, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and uh, and it's it's the kind of thing. It's exactly the kind of thing that someone who's down on their luck would fantasize about. Mm-hmm. They don't fantasize like, oh man, I w-, you know, I wish I just had a two bedroom house. No, they right. dream of having a mansion yeah. and something that's ridiculous. Made even more ridiculous by the fact that the person doesn't know what this world would look like. Mm-hmm. And so everything is a little cartoonish and silly. But for me, when I watched it, I couldn't help but get carry- swept up in it and carried away with it. Yeah, it's kind with of, it. Um, obviously that, but also the, like, the earlier like uh, dream sequence of him lifting the trunks. Mm-hmm. It's Both of those are a lot of fun and you really like you're really enjoying it, mm-hmm. but they're they're bittersweet. Absolutely, uh, they're they're both they're both very sad sequences to me. But the the funny thing is another little sort of, I guess behind the scenes story is I understand that this is that ending came as a result of one of the earliest recorded versions of studio interference. Hmm. Right? I mean, I actually it, didn't know that. Um, that was my understanding. Was uh, and maybe I'm wrong again. Mm-hmm. This is the, you know, I got this off the internet. You know how. You know how those ad- assholes are. Yeah, anyone who's on the internet, you can't take seriously. Um, but, I mean, the the idea was that his script ended sadly. His finances wanted a happier ending. So he... Uh, Went with the happiest ending. Yeah, I mean, you could see it as like kind of a, fuck you, here's your happy ending. Mm-hmm. But really, he managed to make a happy ending that's just as sad, if not more sad. Absolutely. You know, it's... Um, and it's... it's. I mean, it, if... If it had gone on a little bit, I feel like there's another sequence that's like the end of Brazil in that oh, movie, absolutely. you know, where he snaps back to reality and realizes, we're spoiling a lot of movies, but people have seen Brazil, right? I, if they're listening to this, I assume you've seen Brazil. Sorry, okay. everybody. And you know what that story reminds me of? You told me a story about being uh, part of a theater production in which you had written, you know, like... In high school, you're allowed uh-huh. to write your own bio or whatever, and you had written a, a bio... How do I remember this story better than you do? Um, you'd written a bio that was kind of sad or something, or kind of like cynical and melancholy and all that. Uh-huh. And then somebody said, "Like your your bios are always so so melancholy. Why can't you write something happy?" So the next one you wrote for the next production was <laughs> David Bax is happy, 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 happy all the time. I do, do remember writing that. I don't, okay. I don't remember the whole story about how it came about. Yeah. But I remember writing a bio that said, David Bax is happy, happy, happy all the time. Yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah. Uh, that, that's what that reminds me of is it's, it is almost a little fuck you to the, to the studio. It's just like, all right, you want to have, it's like, he doesn't even get, it's just so happy. He doesn't even get his old job back. He doesn't even need a job. What do you think of that studio execs? But yes, he does put his own little stamp on it to let you know that like, Hey, life doesn't go this way. Only in our fantasies does it go this way, yeah. which almost provides a certain degree of hope, but it is, as you say, a bittersweet kind of hope. Yeah. Man, what a wonderful movie. If it, you haven't seen it... One of the best ever. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, really go out and see it immediately. It is so much... It's so wonderful. Okay. So we're um, we're into the back half of the episode here, an hour and 10 minutes in. Um, going to be but, one. I feel like this is going to be one of our shorter uh, profiles, profile episodes. Yeah, especially since there's, um, you know, we've already talked about Nosferatu and The Last Laugh, which are the two it's big one of, ones. It's one of the good things about uh, an artist uh, dying young. <laughs> it's look one at our, of one of the many good. Things. Look at our John Candy episode, uh-huh. a little bit shorter than the others. All right, 1925. Um, I referenced it earlier. Um, Tartuffe, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, based on an I don't know an old novel or something. I don't know my. Uh, 
my history, <laughs> but he 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 updates it in a way. The actual main story you haven't seen this one, right? No. The actual main story is pretty much the classic story, mm. but he uh, inserts a framing device that takes place in modern day, or you know, in 1925 at least, um, where. Um, Again, this plays into what you said about Phantom, about um, people not wanting, about his his father not wanting him to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy, an old rich guy, whose son is an actor, and, or maybe he's a filmmaker. <coughs> I should have seen these more recently, maybe. <laughs> well, that's all right. You saw them when you should have seen them. And, <laughs> right, when uh, we were first going to talk about this yeah. almost a year ago. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I watched this last summer. So, um, uh, he's he comes he comes back and he's got this movie he wants to show. It's a movie of Tartuffe. Hmm. So, the movie, the main thrust of the main chunk of the movie, the actual Tartuffe thing, is really a movie within the movie. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that this guy is showing to his dad. And the story of Tartuffe is this: um, there's this guy who's Gone off, gone off and he's met this monk named Tartuffe who's kind of a cult leader type hmm. who's convinced him of all these that all these sort of um, sort of chaste and spartan ways that he should live his life um, and uh, th- and of course this guy is very rich uh, and he brings Tartuffe back with him to meet his fiance his fiance is very suspicious. He doesn't like. She doesn't like this Tartuffe guy. She doesn't like what her 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 fiance um, has become. And of course, it is revealed that Tartuffe is uh, a charlatan. Mm-hmm. He's just doing this to live in this big mansion and sneak off and drink this guy's wine and then try to seduce his fiance. Mm. Um, and uh, it's Emil Jennings as Tartuffe. Yeah, all right. Uh, and he's he's fantastic. Um, uh, but then you, 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 you kind of forget about the framing device. You come back and you realize that, um, the reason this guy wanted his dad to see this movie is because, uh, this guy's live-in maid, the rich guy's live-in maid is stealing from him. <laughs> <laughs> and so he does it to like out her. Hmm. And so I guess in the end, the dad is happy that his son is involved in the movie industry and the... Scheming maid is out on her keister <laughs> in the cold German streets. Um, yeah, it's a fun movie and um, a very uh, fun performance from Ewell Jennings. All right. And so, ne- and speaking of email, uh, fun performances from uh, Emil Jennings. <laughs> um, uh, next is Faust. Yes. Which, unfortunately. So you talk for a second. Oh, okay. My throat not doing well well that's unfortunate because faust is the one i've seen least recently i haven't seen it since school um so that was good god seven years ago <laughs> oh my gosh i haven't even thought of, okay that's fine that's fine um it's fine you gotta people this is a tangent never mind are you upset with uh people who get who are upset with getting older yeah there's like but i feel like I was going to say there's this thing, but then I remember that you posted it on Facebook as well. Mm-hmm. That was, I can't remember what it was like, Chive Magazine or something. I don't know what it was called. And it was like 20 reasons. Oh, things should, to just make you feel old. Yeah, and it was all yeah, stuff yeah. from the 90s, like, hey, Kimmy Gibbler's in her 30s now or whatever. And it's like, no. 
That stuff doesn't bother me. It, you know, I, it, I've been paying attention the whole time. I feel like the only people who should be affected by that stuff are people who just stopped after high school, stopped caring, and only listen are still listening to LFO and that song "Blue" by I can't remember who sang it. Uh, you know the song I'm talking about. I don't think um, I do. Blue, da ba dee da ba I'm just thinking of things from my senior year of high school. Okay. <laughs> Um, I had found Tom Waits by my senior year of high school, you know, so I don't know as, the... As far as I'm concerned, Jessica Biel and Barry Watson are still on 7th Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's real uh, TV nerd there. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, no, you know, and, and you know what? Like, it's, it's more just uh, nostalgia for me. Like, I don't feel terrible about getting older. It's a combination of, like, recognizing that... I've done some things with my life since uh-huh. high school. Like, you know, I moved away. I went to college. Uh, I found a girl and got married, moved out here, started, you know, we started the show. So, like, part of me is like, all right, well, I, I did some things. So, at the very least, I've got something to hang my hat on. Um, but then it's also the realizing, like, oh, geez, I'm almost 30. <laughs> I uh, I feel like I should have done more. So... Advertisers, Battleship Pretension is always taking, uh, always taking your money. Well, look, I'm doing well. I'm wearing a tie. 1926. I specifically did not bring it up. 1926, Faust. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I have not seen it in many years. And so as far as the story goes, I don't have a strong memory of it. But as one would uh, assume with Murnau, I have a strong memory of almost all the visuals. Yeah. Um, especially because the, uh, I mentioned... Uh, you know, I do have a strong memory of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and the and uh, Mephisto. I'm sorry, Mephisto mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of the film. Um, and one thing that we haven't mentioned is Murnau's use of special effects. Mm-hmm. And and it is interesting how much because uh, I specifically I saw that it was on Netflix. Watch instantly, so I went back just so I could watch the beginning. Uh, there's good special effects throughout, but like the four horsemen and the plague is really what I, the sequence I wanted to look at. And, and that, that sequence shows, um, in sort of just design terms, he was so far ahead of his time. Yeah. Like it feels, um, you know what I, a movie I saw fairly recently that made me think of this four horsemen sequence was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one mm-hmm. and the animated oh, sequence. Oh, wonderful. Um, but didn't it sort of, have you seen this part of Faust more recently. Mm. The the way that it's that, that four horsemen thing toward the beginning is shot like in, in silhouette, mm-hmm. you know, and uh it, did, did, do you see what I'm saying? The connection between those two sequences? Yeah, it does the in in uh mm-hmm. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one. Uh-huh. Um I gotta oh, it does, tickets go, tickets uh, tickets on sale yet for part two? I don't know, but I gotta I gotta get them. Yeah. Um midnight screening, two D please. <laughs> so uh it's yeah, uh, that that sequence does seem kind of old timey in that it doesn't seem quite as fluid as it could have. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like it's purely animated. It seems yeah, almost in, in like Harry Potter, but in Faust, it seems ahead of its time. Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. That's what I. That's I, I was talking about the animated sequence. I'm sorry. Right. Um, but it is. Do you ever find yourself like? I can appreciate one like really wonderful uh, photography in these films, but when it comes to special effects, do you ever find yourself just thinking like? You don't you don't think they're cheap, nor do you think nor do you think they're amazing. They're just there because for me, like m- I'm so used to seeing special effects of all kinds mm-hmm. in movies and television that when I see it done well, 
it even in older movies when I knew a lot more went into it, I find myself it doesn't even register, and I have to remind myself, oh yeah, this wasn't easy, and the fact that it's fair, relatively seamless uh, is a feat. You know, um, I don't know. Do you ever find yourself thinking like that when you look back on older movies with special effects? I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, usually when I'm watching. A, you know, a good director like Murnau, by the time it comes up, I'm so into the movie. I'm not, that's true. I'm not thinking about it anymore. And maybe that's why I think about it in terms of Faust, because it's the first thing. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's, it doesn't come about 40 minutes in or an hour and 40 minutes in. Yeah, that's a, a, of an hour and 55 minute movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a little long. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's if it had come in then, I think I just like, yeah, par for the course. But to start off, first off, the choice to start off your movie with that is a little mm-hmm. interesting, and uh, and I like as far as story structure, I do like that he that Murnau took the story of you know uh, Faustus, and in many ways the story of Job, yeah, and put them together, yeah, and that's something I I never uh, as far as story that was something that I remembered. Um, but the rest of it, I just remember the visuals, and I. But I do remember not liking where they take Mephisto eventually, making him so playful. And this, I don't put this on Emil Yannings. Uh, impish. I- impish. Yeah. Yeah. That after a while, he to me he ceased to be threatening. Or, yeah, see, or frightening. I think I liked it more than you did. Although I don't, I wouldn't count it among my favorite Murnau films. Mm. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm okay with Mephisto taking pleasure in how much uh how much pain he's causing Mm -hmm. faust that's the character right faust yeah um but also just being sort of hedonistic himself yeah it just seems it seems right it it seems like he wouldn't uh he wouldn't be all dour about being evil and the thing is that's his life he should enjoy it i don't have a single problem with mr scratch from the Devil and Daniel Webster, uh-huh. and he's also very impish. But he, there's a certain, there's a real, and maybe it's because it I mean, he was a little shorter. <laughs> yeah, may, yeah, maybe. Um, but I, and also like but the thing is, uh, sorry to interrupt. That's but, fine. Um, the Devil and Daniel Webster isn't that much shorter, mm-hmm. but it's not as. Um, it has a nice normal arc, whereas my problem, the problem. I don't have the problem with Mephisto that you have. My problem with Faust is the same as my problem with Phantom mm. is that uh, it doesn't have this sort of Aristotelian dramatic arc we're used to. A bunch of shit keeps happening at the end. Yeah. And I like. I feel like this is, should kind of be wrapping up by now. Here's what I like about what you just said is you said Aristotelian <laughs> followed up with a lot of shit happens. <laughs> uh, I like that you really... I feel like you appeal to all audiences with a, yeah. fra- a phrase like that, or perhaps none of them. But uh, yeah, and and it's interesting because I start out finding Mephisto quite frightening. Like he does, like the way his eyes gleam. Mm-hmm. I'll never. That's the thing I remember first and foremost about Faust. You ask me about Faust, I'll be like, "Oh, Mephisto's eyes gleaming, right?" <laughs> and uh, and I remember like the you know he looks way more animalistic i love what they do with his wings and the way they cover the city um but then after a while they put him in like the skin tight silk looking stuff i'm like well that's not 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 frightening to me i'm sorry (laughs) um and so but i do remember the art direction and loving the art direction uh especially as as uh, mephisto is first approaching faust uh and first tempting him and uh 
Yeah, I like the I, I like the movie. I appreciate the movie. It's not one that uh, I feel like I would revisit very often. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is. But I do like a lot of Murnau's instincts in it as a filmmaker, as a visual filmmaker. Um, and it makes me wonder if maybe the reason I respond more to Mr. Scratch than Mephisto is because one has delightful dialogue and one doesn't. Perhaps if Dan- Devil and Daniel Webster was silent, they would have had to play things up a little right. bit and right. he- it would have gotten on my nerves. Um, but where the- Okay, so Devil and Daniel Webster is closer to the actual faust story Mm. in that it's about a guy who sells his soul in exchange for what Mm. have you and uh and um and that's pretty much the conflict of the story right is him losing his soul whereas okay go ahead well the the thing with faust that you talked about is adding in the job element Mm -hmm. where it's not just that he sells his soul it's that uh just thing after thing keeps happening to him just right. piling on him because there's this added element of the bet between Mephisto and the Archangel yeah um, the bet being is that if Faust turns evil or whatever right. the world will belong to Mephisto right and so it's like oh okay and I guess maybe that's why I'm bothered by how jovial he is because it's just like there are real stakes here more than one guy yeah but he's winning at that point I suppose I mean um, the sort of um, the thing that is interesting about Faust for all the things that happen, mm-hmm. Mephisto is winning right up until the very end. Yeah. Um. Again, this is the, you know this is spoiler territory, I guess. Yeah. Um. But you kind of know that you know how Faust. Uh, <laughs> uh, it ends hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> someone hopefully. I mean, he dies. <laughs> well, we all die, David, sooner or later. Um. But yeah, he he. <clears throat> I'm trying to remember all the things that happened to him. He there's another plague element or mm-hmm. pestilence. Yes, element, very much so. Um, and he has the power to heal people. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things he sold uh, that he had Mephisto do for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the the townspeople turn on him because they can tell he's evil because he uh, shies away from the cross or something like that. I can't remember exactly. It's how been a while since. Yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah. recall. <laughs> Again, we started preparing for this episode a year ago. <laughs> and I haven't seen this movie in seven years. I'm sorry. Um, um, it, you know, and so he's he's shunned by the townspeople. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, he uh, he wants this woman. So he makes Mephisto make him young. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then uh, eventually she is... Uh, you know, there's a lot of the townspeople turning on 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 Faust and and the woman that he's in in, in love with because they end up burning her at the stake. Yeah, um, which is sad. <clears throat> yeah, and it has, and that's where the ending comes in is mm. that um, Mephisto has tricked Faust. Um, he had made him look young again mm-hmm. to win this woman's heart, but now the only way that he can have her back is if. And Mephisto says, "Okay, you can come back, but I'm going to make you look your actual age." Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, he turns him into an old man again, as he, and he leaps on the fire as she's burning in the stake. And mm-hmm. in that moment, as they're looking into each other's eyes, she realizes who he is—this old man. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the—it does have a very beautiful ending. It yeah. just uh, takes a few too many turns to get there for me. And I think I think one of the things that I that I do like about it is that what Faust wants is not necessarily fortune and 
you know, fortune and glory to go with uh, the Indiana Jones tem- and the Temple of Doom uh, way of phrasing it. He wants things that are inherently good, things that we all want. He wants the power to heal people. And I don't think he wants that for his own glory. He wants it because he genuinely wants to help people in the plague. He wants to woo this young woman that he's but in love see, with. But see, that's later. I mean, early, I feel like later in the movie, when he wants the woman, that that is more selfish. And he is willing to become young. It's about vanity. You know, uh, Is it about vanity, you think? I mean, I, I, I don't know if that's what it's about specifically, but that's certainly, I think, it's intentional that you think of that. You know, that's one of the sort of mortal sins. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just think you see him getting sort of more and more corrupted by it mm-hmm. and then redeeming, it, uh, redeeming at the end. And it makes me, you know, it makes me wonder, and I don't know if this if this question is one that Murnau meant for people to ask, but the idea of, well, he loves this woman and he wants her to love him. And so, in a way, he's tricking her because now he's young, and in actuality, he isn't young. But he's also not, as far as his actual personality, he didn't say, change that. You know, like, he's still him. And so, I don't know, but one could say, like, but he's got many years of wisdom in a young body, which is almost like cheating, one could say. And so, I don't know, it's, and either way he is deceiving her in some way, shape or form. And the way that, and in spite of the fact that he's sold his soul to the devil, ultimately he redeems himself by doing a truly selfless act, which is, you know, to throw himself on the fire and give up his own, as you say, vanity and such. And so I don't know. It's, it is, it is interesting now that I think back on it as, Cynical, uh, maybe, and maybe Faust is the best way to sum up the way Murnau saw people, mm-hmm. which is pretty terrible and pretty depraved, but they have good in them. They have a tremendous... Not, not beyond ca- hope. Yeah, n- not beyond hope, not beyond redemption. They have a tremendous capacity for good in them, and when the chips are down, they will do the right thing. Well, that... Uh, talk about your segues. Let's get into 1927's Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which is the first is the first we're going to talk about of his Hollywood films. Is mm-hmm. it his first Hollywood yes. film? Good. You did more research in that regard than I did. Um, mm-hmm. So was Faust then his last German film? I would assume so, yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, he, 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 he came to Hollywood like so many others. Um, you know, your Fritz Langs, your mm-hmm. uh, Billy Wilders. Mm-hmm. There's another big one, right? Yeah, probably. All right. Um, and and he he made this film, um, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which I think is um, tends to be considered one of the uh, a, a pretty landmark type of film, or mm-hmm. at least one of the sort of biggest films of all time. Is it on the AFI list, or maybe it was it on the original one? You know, I don't think it's I don't think it's on either one. No. Well, but it did get some Oscar recognition the first year that the Oscars were right. around. It won uh, actress and cinematography and another one. Um, and it is that kind of the kind of movie we expect to win a lot of Oscars, and that it's uh, yeah. um, it's very overtly emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a you know there's a lesson learned at the end. Yeah. There's um, a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the good are rewarded, the bad are bad are punished. Yeah. The uh, 
Hero has learned a lesson, mm-hmm. but there's also fantastic production design. Yeah. Um, it's also, uh, I think, I remember having this thought while watching it and watching City Girl, another one that I'm going to talk about at the end. Um, this will be the last you've seen, yes. right? So I'll talk about City Girl quickly at the end. Um, something that both of these have to do with sort of farm life or rural life or country life. And I feel like uh, it's a thing that American audiences and German audiences at the time probably had in common. And things that he was bringing to him that you, you can see in in, in some, of these, uh, some of these older films of his. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Um, and I can't. But I guess Faust has some like village life mm-hmm. to it, you know. Um, I feel like things that he was bringing as a German could very easily be seen as American values as well. And that's uh, it's and you see it in you see it in Metropolis as well as a general distrust for the city, um, uh-huh. and the which even you don't even have to mention the village to know that cities you know to know that well it's obviously better than this right like right. look at this kind of uh, moral depravity and such. yeah and I, I mean I feel like that's it, I don't know if that's an actual American ideal but that's a Hollywood ideal from the beginning like anytime you have a city character and a country character the country character is. The good one, the purer one, which is astounding to me. Uh, I remember we—I think we talked about this when uh, Paul Gilmartin Martin was here. Uh, the idea of Hollywood putting out this ideal, while many of the people in Hollywood who insist on that ideal would probably never want to go to a small village. They yeah. would want to stay. <laughs> I'm in one Hollywood. of those people, by the way. Yeah, I know you hate uh, you hate people in small towns. You hate. I don't hate the people, but I hate the small towns. Oh, okay. And I'm terrified of the people. <laughs> Oh, okay. There you go. I'd say that's about the same as hate, right? No, I, I feel. I feel. I swear we've had this conversation. Before. We have had it before. Yes. Okay. Then I probably made the same analogy. The, like small town people, who are convinced that if they go to the big city, they're immediately going to get mugged or stabbed or raped or something. Mm-hmm. The way they fear that irrational fear they have about the big city. I kind of have that about small towns. If I'm on a road trip and I have to pull into a small town to, use to for the gas station, like I get nervous. I feel like oh, I'm going to get Texas Chainsaw Massacred or something. <laughs> like there are weirdos in the way. Like Ed Gein is just you know on the other side of this counter here at the mm-hmm. at the at the convenience mart or whatever. I'm, See, and I think some people go into a city and they're like, I'm going to get wired. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, because well, they got so many Starbucks there. <laughs> Uh, watch okay, out so, oh it's too bad the episode has to continue doesn't it so back to sunrise um a song of two humans we could, we'll just call it sunrise from this point on that's I a think. good call but uh would you like me to take over you sound like you're uh fading i'm dying okay uh well i'll i'll, I'll talk for a minute because i actually i just watched it today i'd seen uh, some of it before but this is the first time i've watched uh it in its uh totality what that's a word okay um Entirety is what I probably meant to say. Totality is probably a word, though, right? I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But entirety is what I meant to say. All right. So, um, yeah, and it's it's interesting because my my attitude towards Sunrise was fairly negative for a while, and then it won me over because you mentioned the idea of the lesson being learned at the end of the movie. No, no, no. The lesson is learned about half hour in. There's an hour left. It's not right. a long movie. Right. But, what, like, it peaks, like, the, okay... Uh, it's about uh, this this uh, young couple. Uh, they've got a child, and they live on the farm. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, but as the movie opens, the husband is you know frequent. What? Oh, Sorry ahead. to interrupt, but I want to interject this here. I talked about I, I mistakenly talked about the sound when talking about Haunted Castle. I meant the picture. Mm-hmm. But what's amazing to me, so many of these silent films. When I think back, I like my memory of them includes sound. Oh yeah, like I make that up for myself, and like the. The crying baby, like I can hear it in my head mm-hmm. right now. It's uh, it's very evocative. Yeah, I can hear the sounds of the city uh-huh. uh, when I think back on Metropolis and on Sunrise. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's but that I, is one of the fascinating things about these films. It's for me, it's the same as like a foreign film. When I think back on a performance, I remember it in English. Right. It's very strange. Um, but anyway, yeah, you mentioned the city, but this starts in the country with right. this couple. There's a screaming baby. Mm-hmm. There's but a, there is a wife. It does make a point early on, uh, as Murnau is using uh, cards to explain, that this story could take place anywhere and that it could, or and, and at any time as well, uh-huh. and talks about like it could happen in the city, it could happen in the country, which is interesting because based on that card, one would think that to him they're, you know, morally equal. <laughs> and immediately you see that like, Oh, well, I mean, clearly the country is better than the city, uh, in your view. But also what I like is there's, there, good things happen in the city. Yeah, early on, that's the impression we get because there's the right. city woman. Yes. Not the city girl, which is the next movie we're going to talk about. But there is, there is something that really interests me as far as art direction. You go into the city, you see cars and you see a vi- you see like suits and very, mm-hmm. very modern looking things. Yeah. Whereas electricity. In the, yeah. Oh, for example, uh, whereas in the country you see, you know, like peasant guard. It really could take place at any time. Exactly. The, yeah. Which is why there's a scene where uh, a character is running into the woods, and you see like a trolley car go by, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. like it's <laughs> it's so jarring to see modern technology, and that trolley car takes her into the city, and it's a whole other. A whole other time, and that's yeah, one of the things that I back. like about it. I find it really interesting. Let's get back. To, I mean, I don't want this whole. I don't want to like just do a plot summary, but this mm-hmm. does have, like Last Laugh, it has a pretty straightforward plot. Yeah, there's the couple. The man is uh, having an affair with this woman who's come from the city. The woman from the city is what she's <laughs> yeah. credited as, um, and she's pure evil. No question <laughs> about it. <laughs> and I like I like that. She. I mean, she is. I mean, this is uh, this is 1927. This is before film noir she's like the original femme fatale well and she kind of she has a flapper also yeah. uh, flapper like look to her yeah um and so the man and this city woman come up with this plan where he's going to kill his wife so that mm-hmm. he can be with her yes and don't mention the child by the way i watched this with jen and she's like what would happen to the kid and it's like there's a- no one noticed <laughs> yeah well we know it takes a village to raise a child so it'll be I, fine yeah um um so he embarks on the plan Mm -hmm. he's gonna take her out he's got the two bundles of reeds that he's gonna use to stay afloat after he's drowned his wife right made it look like the boat capsized capsized um and then in the mid like in the middle of this terrifying scene of him actually like starting to kill his wife it's a really good and and again terrifying scene um which he i will say this he stages it really well because um, of course, I mean, the, the wife is just the image of purity right, right down to her blonde hair to the city woman's uh, black hair. Right. But there's a – as the husband is rowing, first off, it's it may be my favorite moment of 
that actor's performance as he's rowing his head is down and he's just rowing as fast as he can to get them to the middle of the lake so that he can just get this done right and it's notable it's it's notable that you see her and her eyes are big and wide and confused she doesn't know what's about to happen we don't see his eyes at all his his head is down and we don't see his eyes he doesn't have a crazy look in his eye we don't see any of the look in his eye because he is shutting off his emotions right he's shutting off one could say his soul because the eyes are the windows to the soul and we don't see any of that whereas with her it's all eyes and uh and i i love the way he he does that when he for is forced to look into her eyes yeah he's trying to kill her that's when he i guess remembers that he loves her or whatever i guess again it's kind of a simplistic story yeah um he's trying to kill her he remembers that he loves her Mm -hmm. she's understandably a little frightened by what's gone down fair enough she she runs off and catches that trolley car Mm -hmm. as you talk about he follows her into the city um they i mean she's they they make up at some point and i I mean i feel again it's a little simplistic but it doesn't bother me because it seems to fit into the general Mm -hmm. uh just sort of tone of the of the picture this one i'd say feels even more like a fable yeah. than any of the others but it it doesn't it's not silly he doesn't just say i'm sorry and they hug like right there is a little bit of a process of her warming back up to him yeah you know which is the least you can ask for yeah <laughs> um uh but then they have this uh essentially a date i guess in the city yeah that's um it's ma- an adventure it's, it's magical too yeah. and i mean it really is like the magic of cinema. You know, you, we've been talking, you know, you, you think of Murnau as this German silent film director who made these serious and depressing movies like The Last Laugh and Nosferatu, mm-hmm. but he really did ma- make, I mean, he's part of the reason that we have cinematic magic the way that we've come to know it. Mm-hmm. He, he really was able to use the camera to transport you to a dreamland, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, the the sort of, if there's ever been a movie that makes you want to step through the silver screen and live in that world, it's these city scenes in Sunrise for me. Mm-hmm. This looks like the most fun place in the world. Everyone's partying. There's music. Again, mm-hmm. I'm hearing, I'm assuming there's, I mean, I guess there's, you know, the soundtrack to the movie, mm-hmm. the, the piano or whatever, but I'm hearing this whole band and everything and, and, and the uh, people and the car horns and all this stuff. Uh for for a guy like me who's terrified of the country, this is this is the city that I want to live in. Although I will say that, as like I said, like I wasn't thrilled about the film, and then it won me over because there's a sequence where like uh, characters are running after a pig that's that's See, that gotten part loose. Is awesome. There's another one where they're I do like this this sequence where they're dancing and they're dancing the band has put uh are playing something called like the peasant waltz or something uh-huh. like that and and the the man is like offended at me uh, at first because it's just like oh they know everyone here knows who uh-huh. i am and then his wife just says well she doesn't say it but like let's just get into it and the two wind up having fun and it's a lot of fun yeah. but then it cuts to like this man and woman that are watching them that we've never seen before and don't see afterwards where like her uh the straps of her dress keep falling down and he keeps putting them back up oh, that's, and that's fun yeah, but it keeps cutting back to them. <laughs> yeah. And after but, a while, it's, it, it, it's exhausting. But, but the, what pig, I, the piglet thing, it's not a pig, it's a piglet. Right. And it's, it's adorable. worth saying. And but also, no, that part is also, you, you were talking way back at the beginning of this episode, almost two hours ago, about... Um, really? An hour and 43. Damn it. Um, about uh, 
what Renat was doing with the camera before the sound equipment came in and, and weighed it down. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, there's a kineticism to this movie yeah. uh, and to these city scenes and even to what happened, what comes next, um, that is thrilling. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that chasing the piglet scene uh, is all about that. Just this is what cinema is capable of. Just, you know, I'm s- here I am sitting on my couch in North Hollywood when I at the time that I watched this and I feel like I'm chasing through this, you know, ballroom in whatever city in 1927. And there is a definite change of pace between the country stuff and the city stuff. City stuff, very kinetic, very energetic. The country scenes, like, they go on, I, I won't say too long, but they really stretch out. Like, one shot will go for a while of just two characters sitting and talking and, or just looking at each other. Mm-hmm. And then once they hit the city... You know, the camera becomes another character, another participant. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's not yeah. just movement. It's the type of movement. It's the kind of thing that uh, if you know cinema from the era, it's pretty damn impressive to oh, think yeah. like, how how did they do that? Like, how did he get, how did he free that camera up so much? You yeah. Know? And, and not, you know, not just in Sunrise, but, you know, in, in a lot of his films, particularly mm-hmm. The Last Laugh, and there's some great stuff in City Girl as well. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it implies a certain degree of ambition because, yes, he frees up the camera, but it, he first had to want to free up the camera and not be – he refused to be limited by, you know, the limitations of the technology he said, like, no, I'm, I'm going to do this because this is the way I want to tell the story. And, I don't know, I always admire that sort of thing. Even though, in film school, I completely lacked that ambition. I always knew what my, what my limitations were. I'm like, well, I'm writing this thing. I'll write it within my, well within my resources. <laughs> and he, uh, he refused to do that. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's one of the, to me, it's one of the most admirable things about him. So, um, in keeping with our tradition of spoiling the endings of these movies, um, you know, he... It comes back. They they decide to return mm-hmm. to their to their home, and um, there actually is a storm, and the boat actually does capsize. Yeah, and the guy is convinced that he's lost his wife after they've reconnected. Although, when as the boat is about to sink, he grabs those bundles that he was going to right. use for yes. himself and ties both of them to her. Right, like he doesn't even say, "Here's one for you, here's one for me." He puts them both on her. Yeah. So and then to, the, then the boat tips over, yeah. Yeah, to keep her alive. But then he washes up on shore. No one can find her. Um, he goes back to the house and starts starts crying. Right, mm-hmm. is yeah. that recall? Much the same way that the wife did early earlier when she sort of, I guess, realized he was having an affair with a woman. Yeah, you've seen this today. Yes, <laughs> seen it months ago. Um, and then, what do you think this says? I feel like. Eventually, she is found mm-hmm. by, like, one more fisherman who stayed out there who didn't give up the hunt or whatever. Right, because he said he has knowledge of the tides and he knows right. where she would have wound up. Right. But I feel like there's an emphasis placed on the fact that this one guy still believed she was out there. Mm-hmm. Even though our hero, you'd think he'd be the guy still right. looking. Right. He's resigned to her being dead. What do you think Murnau is saying about human nature? Like... I feel like that's a little bit of extra cynicism again at the end. Uh, the the fact that he gives up so easily. I don't know. It's, I wouldn't go so far as say he gives up easily. I guess in comparison. 
Right, because everybody gives up at the same time, right. and of course he's her husband. But who knows? It might also... Okay, the film gives no indication of what I'm about to say, by the way. So this is just my speculating and perhaps my being uh, wishful thinking on my part. Uh-huh. But um, perhaps he was thinking like, I've, I've, I've done all that I know to do. Um, and everyone else is giving up, and I now have a kid to raise. Yeah, I gotta take care of that fucking baby. Yeah, it's always crying. <laughs> That's not true. It does some cute things early on where it right. takes, it puts the woman's hat on on its head. <laughs> That's right. So, um, and it's very adorable. So Stupid maybe it's baby. maybe it's that. But that's the thing is, he also, when laying on the bed, the girl, the woman from the city, knows all that right. has happened, oh, yeah. and she gives him a little whistle, which is how she gets him in the past and he like looks up from the bed and he just and he just goes right after her and like starts strangling her yeah and uh which of course and part of me is a little frustrated by that because i feel like it it eliminates responsibility yeah responsibility from him yeah there's definitely a um again we'll see it in city girl i feel like i've talked about everything in city girl at this point that's all right but there is a patriarchal point of view um and some of that can be blamed on the times, mm-hmm. I guess. But, uh, yeah, this femme fatale, all the blame gets put on her at that point. And it, it's probably just a, f- not, not just a function of this, but I think it's also just a practical function of like, okay, well, she's op- she's mostly a metaphor at this point. She's right. barely a person. And she's the metaphor of temptation and seduction and, and sin and all mm-hmm. these other things. So in him, he no, she no longer carries any, he has no desire for her at all. And so him wanting to kill her is, I don't know, visually symbolic of him saying, like, I have, even with my wife dead, I have no desire for you anymore. But yes, it is, uh, although he takes responsibility earlier because he doesn't merely say, I'm sorry. He does say, forgive me. And there's a certain degree of, uh, I don't know, I feel like that's a deeper uh, admission of guilt than merely, I'm sorry. So, um, but yes, it is a little, it is a little frustrating. It's like, (laughs) come on, guy. Have a little bit of understanding, you know, the way your wife had for you when you did try to kill her. <laughs> um, but yes, I, yeah, I, you know, you take the good with the bad, I guess. Yeah. Um, so also, yeah. Uh, lead actor of Sunrise looks so shockingly like John Hamm, it freaks me out. <laughs> that's true. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Um, yeah, so that's that's Sunrise. Um, but yeah, I, I mentioned. Um, I, I keep harping on this point. The 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 freedom of the camera mm-hmm. but um even as the the search sequence you know mm-hmm. the way that the camera is sort of like hovering and moving over the water mm-hmm. you know it, again it's like how do they like you you think of these cameras as being so unwieldy at this yeah. point in history and you, it, it's it's astounding there were shots when he when they're rowing uh around the lake before he goes to kill her and um in which I don't know where the camera could be. Uh-huh. Like it's just like, well, we're seeing the whole boat and the and we're moving along with them. So the camera's not in the boat. Is the camera in another boat that is going at the exact same pace? Right. Like I can't figure it out now. And it, it it's really yeah, yeah it's, it's really fascinating stuff. Um, but let's I'll wrap up real quickly with City Girl um, because um, this is another American film he did. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, it also has some some comedic elements. It's a, a country guy goes to the city to uh, 
his father's a farmer and he's going to be he, he has to go to the city to make a deal to sell uh that year's crop mm-hmm. and he has to hang around wait around for a couple weeks wait for the prices to go up to an acceptable amount so he's eating lunch at this counter every day the same place every day and meets the woman who works there the young woman and um they fall in love and he brings her back to the farm with him mm-hmm. they're gonna get married and um it it doesn't really have a lot new to it than what we've already talked about mm-hmm. um there is certainly the element this is an element that i hadn't thought of while making the list but it's come up a couple times now of the disapproving father mm-hmm. um because this father is a real prick okay. to uh to the guy's new new fiance um and then of course there's the city versus country element and this one is a little bit uh i guess not it's sort of like sunrise showing the good and the bad mm-hmm. you know um the uh the this is this one was pro country and pro city i mean like there are some a lot of the people that she works for back on the the lunch counter in the city are kind of you know ruthless and uncaring um but also a lot of the farm hands back in the country are sort of leering and predatory and a little rapey and gross <laughs> yeah there's a little bit of a rapey element <laughs> um uh this is what i'm afraid of in the country um it's just all deliverance for you isn't it (laughs) yeah okay that that deliverance is the perfect horror movie for a person like me okay texas chainsaw is is up there yeah that's a big one too especially because you're kind of hippie-ish and uh (laughs) they really go for the hippies i resent that um uh and then of course there's the uh, obviously both people have to learn lessons but i feel like the woman character has to compromise more Mm-hmm. And that's maybe a bit of a complaint, but at a certain extent, it's like, it's like Patton Oswalt's bit about the searchers, you know, it's like, yeah. this is the time it took place. You kind of have to, yeah. you kind of do accept it. You know, you know, we've, we've progressed a little. And you know, that actually makes me, I, I'm sorry to, I want to go back to Sunrise to talk about the role of women in the film, because I do think that in that film, they do exist largely as metaphor because, mm-hmm. because as evil as the woman from the city is the wife could not be more saintly you know what i mean so like so while certainly the man blames the evil woman and doesn't take a great deal of responsibility himself at no point does the film say that like his wife drove him to that woman or anything like that like Mm -hmm. she like a woman is probably crying baby what was that no question about it murnau hated children (laughs) but uh and so, like, the only truly spotless character in the film is a woman. And so, at the same time, she's not allowed to develop very much right. as a character. So, right. I do think... It's, it's, a city girl improves on that a bit. I would okay. say that the, the woman is a character in the movie. Okay. But it's still sort of... It's... Uh, my, my vocabulary suffers when I'm sick. The mm-hmm. onus is on her, I guess, mm-hmm. to adjust okay um but also i guess the father has to okay has to learn to not be such a prick <laughs> and yeah. i don't know yeah I, I i obviously like all this other stuff haven't seen it in months um and i don't know the actor who played the father but he does a really good job of being unlikable that's good <laughs> that's good um yeah it's so uh so how do we how do we sum this up it is uh Murnau died in 1931 yeah uh, city girl was 1930 um as far as how i would 
sum it up. I guess, um, you know, there's a. Yeah, I do this other podcast called Previously On. I've heard of it. And my co-host Sean uh, is fond of saying, I don't know if he's ever said it on the podcast, but he said it to me before, that uh, as much as everyone loves The Sopranos, it's still somehow underrated, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I kind of feel that way about like Black Sabbath. Like Everyone knows Black Sabbath is a good band. No, Black Sabbath is a great band. Mm. And I kind of feel that way about Murnau. Like, okay. I feel like people have are certainly aware of Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. And and are and if they know about film, they're at least aware of the last laugh, I guess. But I feel like he's still somehow underrated. Like his his influence on what was to come uh, is maybe not appreciated as much as it should be. I think people point to Nosferatu and then they move on to Fritz Lang. Uh-huh. Now Fritz Lang was great. Don't get me wrong, but yes, Murnau. I mean, if you watch the last laugh, of course. These are the only only the movies I've seen. You watch Last Laugh or Faust or Sunrise. Like this is a a a master of filmmaking. I would venture mm-hmm. to say. Um, now, of course, as far as storytelling, perhaps he could have tightened things up a bit. Yeah, yeah. But as far as filmmaking, like I can't think of a better a master of technique. And ha- and he never did technique for its own sake. He always did it mm-hmm. to suit the story, to suit the themes, and. He's just somebody who deserves to be remembered amongst the great silent film directors, and I think people probably do. But I find myself—it's. It, I think they, I think they say like, "Oh yeah, Murnau was great," but you almost feel as though it's lip service. And hey, I mean, yeah. I have no room to talk. I've only seen four of his movies. You know, uh, you've Fritz, seen far yeah, more than I have. Fritz Lang was the better storyteller, and I don't know, Sergei Eisenstein was the better editor. Mm-hmm. Um, but. As far as what what was possible with the camera, and again, and the, like you say, how it could serve the story mm-hmm. and the morality and the theme, mm-hmm. um, he was yeah, he was probably I would say unparalleled in among silent filmmakers. And here's here's one thing that I'll say, and I know this sounds a little silly. Um, no, it, do, it doesn't sound silly, but it sounds maybe a little uh, sappy. Um, so I uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it on this show, but I recently rewatched Metropolis, the uh, restored edition, where there's still yeah, a couple things, a couple things missing, and I love it. Uh-huh. I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of Metropolis before because I did not find it uh, satisfying from a narrative standpoint. Of course, beautiful visually. Of course, mm-hmm. I just said of course twice. Sorry, that's okay. But uh, it's late. Oh I'm, man, it is I'm a little sick. late. So it's okay. I'm not going to work tomorrow. Oh yeah, that's right. You're I'm going sick. to the. Pitch fest. No, I'm sick. Oh, you're sick. I'm sorry. That's why you're not oh, going I to work tomorrow. Actually, I'm sick. Yeah. No, it all works out. <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying it's convenient is all. So uh, so anyway, but watching with the restored footage, and of course the restored f- footage very grainy, and that's a nice little visual signifier of like, oh, I haven't seen this bit before. <laughs> but, I and I love Metropolis now. I find it so much more gratifying to watch from a story standpoint and one thing that I, we've talked, we, we already talked about Kino a little bit. There are companies that are devoted to preserving wonderful films. And in, in thinking back on Murnau, I find myself really upset that there are films of his that are lost. No one can see them. Yeah. You can see stills. No one can see the whole thing. And that's very sad. But part of me feels like, 
somebody went to the trouble of preserving these films and they could just as just as easily have been lost uh but like i don't know part of me feels like someone went to the trouble so watch them because (laughs) and and somebody went to the trouble because they're great yeah you know and so i I don't know it's i I even even faust and phantom which were the two we probably complained about the most are still worth watching oh absolutely um if if only just from an academic historical yeah. point of view, and it's just you know you you only stand. I I would venture to say you only stand to benefit from watching these films, and watching. I don't know. I I have a, a fondness for silent film. I haven't seen a whole lot of it, but I have. I have because you get to watch film evolve as an art form and you get to see it's like watching a kid grow like Mm -hmm. you get to see it and it's so much it's so exciting and you can tell when a filmmaker has happened upon something Mm -hmm. because they're excited and and so it's uh i don't know go and we we've only profiled two silent filmmakers buster keaton and now murnau um now murnau Mm -hmm. and uh (laughs) oh silly i'm sorry (laughs) but uh I don't know. For those that that might be a little reluctant to revisit silent film, and silent comedy is of course easier because it's comedy. Mm-hmm. But like for those that might be reluctant to do it, it because it, it seems easier. But I think once, I think once any halfway intelligent person gets twenty minutes into the last laugh, they're yeah not gonna feel bored. I th- I think even ten minutes. Like mm-hmm. it's just if you're if you're even slightly committed to watching it. It'll it, you'll you'll find yourself surprisingly engaged, um, and so I'd say let uh, let Murnau be your your entry point into silent film because I'd say he is fairly accessible, and uh, you will uh, not be you'll not be sad that you did it. Okay, and as we cross the two hour mark, Woo. we will uh, bid you adieu. Um, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. Or in iTunes, you can email us David at battleshippretension.com or Tyler at battleshippretension.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at the pretension, or follow Tyler on Twitter at twitter.com slash more lessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson at more than one lesson.com, or in iTunes. And you can find my other podcast, the weekly television review show previously on at previouslyonshow.com or in iTunes. So thank you for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.